Hello, everyone, and welcome back to uh, Turnetta Punk. This is, of course, Turnetta Punk Splits, where we have two past guests come back and reunite. Some, or sometimes they don't even know each other, but this time they definitely do. Two people that have worked together and two of the sweetest human beings I've gotten to meet in all of entertainment. Oh, though Michael denies it a little bit in this episode, but you'll hear all that in a second. Chris Estrada and Michael Imperioli return to the show for a great conversation. This was recorded before the uh, SAG extra strike uh, happened, so we will be respecting that strike, of course, 100%, and, you know, back labor movements, obviously. It's, it's a punk thing to do. Uh, but we will have more on all this in one second. First, if you want to get in touch with me, hit up the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by Tristan, my brother and show producer of the podcast. Thank you, Tristan. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Damien. There are TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram pages, all for this podcast, all found at Turned Out of Punk on those platforms. Uh, I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. You can find out more information at fuckedup.cc. And I will be heading to Las Vegas right after I finish recording this intro because I will be doing some tours at the Punk Rock Museum. There's going to be some stuff happening on the 23rd with a fellow friend of Chris and Michael's, Fred Armisen. There's going to be stuff happening on the 24th where I'm going to be giving some tours at the Punk Museum. And also at 11.30 a.m., you can come down and watch this if you get a ticket, Fat Mike and Fred Armisen for a live Turned Out of Punk Splits. The first live Turned Out of Punk Turned Out of Punk Splits I've ever done. I guess all of them are kind of splits in a way, but this one specifically is a splits. And that's going to be fun because I, I cannot think of two people that disagree on punk more in their sort of taste than Fred and Mike. And this will be a, that'll be a good chat. So come on down to Las Vegas. And then on the 25th, I'm going to be doing some tours and I'm going to be doing some other stuff throughout the day, maybe some lectures, maybe a slideshow about punk rock stuff. I'm going to have a fun time. So if you're in Las Vegas, come on down. And if you're not in Las Vegas, get a last minute flight. That's the 24th and 25th. Stuff's going down on the 23rd, but all of Fred's stuff's already sold out. So, you know, but you can come down on the 24th and see Fred and Fat Mike and me, Fat Damien, all hanging out together. Skinny Fred. Actually, Mike's a little bit skinny too. Still Chubby Damien though. That's still, that's still, they're not going to sell that out. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, coming back to the show today, Chris Estrada and Michael Imperioli. These guys are incredible people. I've, you know, I'm I'm very lucky when I do this podcast that there's some guests that have come on, and I've gotten to remain friends with. And Chris is someone who, my gosh, if you have not heard Chris's first appearance on the show, go back and listen to it because Chris is one of the deepest head punk hardcore fans I think I've, I've ever met. Certainly ever had on the show. That's for sure. I guess everyone I've met that's a deep punk rocket has been on this show, so that doesn't really make sense. Anyway, he's a deep head. Michael Imperioli is someone who I was a huge fan of, right? Sopranos, Basketball Diaries, like, like it just goes on and on. We could just spend the whole next little bit listing off stuff that Michael's done. White Lotus, you know, there I go again. And when Michael initially came on the show, I was having a, a terrible day. If you go back and listen to the Michael episode, I think I've explained it all in the intro. If not, it was it was a very very not great day that I was having that day when I sat down and talked to him. And it really, uh, it, it just really struck me and kind of caught me off guard how, how down to earth and, and kind of present Michael is. And then of course, getting to know him a little bit better over social media and following him on that, getting to spend time with him at the dinosaur junior summer camp a couple years ago. He is that guy. And he'll deny it in this episode. You'll hear, you'll hear me kind of repeat this to him in the episode and him kind of like, 
push it off and push it away. But I think it is because he is that guy. I've never been around him and not been blown away by just how, it sounds corny, but how real he is. Anyway, I'm not going to ramble on and on. Hey, everybody, please sit back, relax, and enjoy Michael Imperioli and Chris Estrada on Turned Out of Punk Splits. Michael, Chris, thank you both for coming back to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. It really means a lot to come back this time with Michael. Yeah, like that's that's the thing. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of both of you guys individually and and as former guests of the show, but I cannot wait for the new season of This Fool. I love that show. It's like such a such a comfort to watch with my wife and stuff. So, I'm I'm very excited for season 2. Yeah, thanks very man. Soon. I was really flattered. Yeah. I was really flattered when you reached out and told me that you and your wife really enjoyed watching it together. And yeah, I think, yeah, it meant a lot. Well, I think like TV for us is like our, uh, our, our like kind of like our, our love language, you know, watching mm-hmm. TV shows, smoking pot after the kids are in bed yeah. and, and, and finding a show where we're both like, yeah, this, this fulfills all the, uh, the needs of what we need from a TV show is rare sometimes for us. Actually, both, <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff you've been involved in, Michael, too. Uh, we've enjoyed watching as well, but these things are very important to us. So this fool is very important to our relationship. You guys are keeping us together. <laughs> Thanks. Happy to be uh, to be of service. <laughs> it's also I could have invited Fred on here too, Armisen, because yeah. I think the three of you are also the most chill, level-headed people I've met in entertainment. And that's like in music, TV, whatever, that like just three people that are really grounded. And I find it, I don't know, I find it interesting that you're also all three kind of from different punk rock backgrounds, but all kind of engaged with this music in a really deep way. And also yeah. all involved in the same show. Thanks, man. Yeah. Michael is pretty chill, but he can be a diva sometimes on set. He would be like, don't talk to me until 12.05 p.m. <laughs> don't look me in the eyes. <laughs> you don't know us very well. You know, we know each other a little bit, Damien. If you knew us better, I don't know. You may have a different opinion, but, yeah. um, you know, the, I think that the punk aspect really comes from the punk con- element on this fool comes from Chris because he, you know, that's his aesthetic and... He brings it, you know, I think it's probably one of the reasons why I got there because Chris and I, you know, relate on music and, and uh, you know, he brings a, a really authentic aesthetic and a really idiosyncratic one to the show, you know, through his, I'm, I'm speaking about you, so don't. Oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. You know, um, yeah. his, you know, his aesthetic, like about art and cinema and graphic novels and music I think really brings a specificity to the character and the world of this fool that uh, people really pick up on. Yeah, I think for me, what's been really cool is how people just pick up on like the nuances. Because I always wanted to put in like, like, I always wanted to sneak punk stuff into a show, but not make a big deal out of it. You know, because like, I know for Michael, like, you know, like you're into alternative culture and you talk about punk and you love Lou Reed and, you know, you're in a band, but I feel like you can kind of talk to anyone. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be about those kind of like alternative punk things. And it's kind of the way I felt too. I feel like I can, I don't have to talk to people about that stuff to have good conversation. So if I could sneak it in, in a subtle way, 
from like, you know, let from pain wearing a Lou Reed shirt or, you know, me wearing punk shirts or, you know, the music and the show that comes in and out, like without making a big statement about it. I think, yeah, I think that's what, and that has a lot to do with, I think, the fact that like when you when you have friends who maybe don't like the same things you have, you like you, you learn how to just like love what you love, but not make a huge deal about it to everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. That and but the people who dig it really pick yeah. up on it and love it. I got Lou on today. See, look at Lou that. Lou's yeah. a big fucked up fan. You know. I know you that's know? the weirdest thing ever to me. I'm I still. He, I, I, I have a playlist and he's and fucked up, that he made and fucked up is on it. Oh, yeah, that, I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. There's like a record oh, too yeah. in his record collection. Someone sent me a photo, and that just to me is like. Yeah, that, that trips me up every time I think Jesus, about it. That's insane. Yeah. How does how does that feel? Like the read out your records. Like that's fucking insane. I don't know if maybe it's my insecurity, but I kind of don't really accept it. You know, like I still kind of am like, well, yeah. like I always have to come up with a rationale of how it could happen with him not actually liking the band because yeah, yeah, it's almost just too much to kind of think about. Which is like it must be crazy, Chris, to be on a show with Michael. Imperial, oh, yeah. like one of the greatest <laughs> actors ever, right? Like that's yeah. like yeah. for him to come to this project is like your first project, and like kind of, yeah. you know, the guy's yeah, only been involved in hits. Yeah, it was so crazy. I remember, you know, hearing him on this podcast before we filmed the show, like hearing him on this podcast and being like, and you know, having known that he was in a band, knowing that his band covered, um, you know, "Heroin" by Lou, by the Velvet Underground knowing that he was one of the writers of Summer of Sam, which had that kind of pink, big punk influence in it. And I always say this, like, I don't think you can make, um, I don't think you can make a Please Kill Me into a book, but you can capture that era. And I think Summer of Sam really captured that era. So, you know, to me, it was, yeah, it was really cool to, I never thought he'd say yes. <laughs> you know, so, when, you know, having him be a part of it and then, talking about music and yeah. him giving me shit for not liking Morsi and me giving him shit for liking Morsi. It was all, <laughs> it was all part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Him, him kind of going beyond the, the, the Mexican American stereotype of liking yeah. and having, yeah. a, having a kind of nice haircut and yeah. not liking Morsi. Yeah. It's all wrong. You know that. But that that's the hardcore <laughs> kid. Hardcore kids have a real love hate relationship with Morsi. Either they like are, devotees or they are just cannot stand the dude yeah, i think everybody's yeah. like that either, <laughs> yeah. either you love him and get him or you just despise him. like my yeah. son is my son's a guitar player he's 21 and he just can't stand him i mean part yeah. of that was because i was always listening to him when he was probably when he was growing up pro pro probably a lot of it's that but he just bristles at the mention of the name what about like johnny mars playing though he does dig it, but he just, uh, I think he just, you know, you you can't really separate it, the, the voice from the guitar playing in the Smiths tracks, you know? Yeah. So just stays away. <laughs> One of the things I'm obsessed with is the fact that Morrissey tried out for Slaughter and the Dogs. And just picturing his voice singing those Slaughter and the Dogs songs, like, crying to really high, like, it's just so yeah. insane. Did he, didn't he record with them or play shows with them? I think he played shows with the nosebleeds. 
And nosebleed. Billy Duffy was on the podcast and I asked Billy Duffy, I'm like, what was his voice like singing those nosebleed songs? Like, was it, was it really high? And did he sing the old nosebleed songs? And he's like, he's like, you know what? I really can't remember. And he's like, I'm racking my brain, but I, he's like, I think it was high. Cause he has such a distinct, you know, kind of operatic tone. It's just so weird to picture it on anything other than his stuff. Yeah, I know it is. And my relationship with Morrissey is complicated because I, I admittedly do like there's a bunch of Morrissey songs I like and I admittedly do like the Smiths. But because when I was growing up, it was so expected for you to like it and everybody liked it that I was like, oh, fuck that. <laughs> and I, I, I picked a battle that nobody was fighting. I was like, I'm a cure guy. Like, I love the cure. <laughs> nobody was ha- that wasn't a battle that existed. Nobody was like drawing lines in the sand that I know of. But you know, to me, I kind of have this love-hate relationship with them because I it, specifically the Smiths are really like amazing to me, even though like admittedly, I don't always sit down and listen to them, but they are an amazing band. But to me, Morsi himself, it's like as much as he, he can get on my nerves, like the fact that he got the New York Dolls back together, you know, is a big deal to me. Like, um, you know, the fact that he he got those bands together he got the New York Dolls together in that documentary. What was that documentary? The on Arthur Killer Kane. Yeah, what is that called? I was just at um, New York Doll. I think New York Doll. Yeah, and where they yeah. yeah Meltdown Festival was the Morrissey Festival they got back together for. Yeah, mm. that's amazing to me. You know, or the fact that like he was a big Cramps fan and that he loved the Ramones and stuff like that. Even though I think initially he gave the Ramones a bad review first when he wrote he wrote for a zine. Maybe he wrote something for. I could be wrong. Did he ever write something for NME or was it a local zine that he wrote? I think there's letters he wrote to the NME at different times about yeah, different bands. Right. Yeah. Um, but he did do a zine as well. He did like a New York Dolls newsletter, I believe. Yeah. Amazing. And a book, actually, like a fan. And James, he wrote a book on James Dean and a book on the Dolls. He wrote two wow. books. Wow. I didn't know he wrote a book on James Dean. <laughs> yeah. One of the original punks. Like a fan, like a fan book, kind of. You know? Yeah. Um, it's it, just... well, it's, I think history's more on your side on that cure the Smith's debate now. But, and, <laughs> and I think, I think they do. I think Robert Smith and, and uh, Morrissey they do, do have, right. Yeah. It's a little bit they like, Oh yeah. No, there's, there's, that's not, yeah. There's no love between them. I just heard, you know what I heard? That's really, I, I that really touched me. You know, the cure is touring, you know, they, they, they don't come to America very often. They were at the garden and which I, I wasn't here and I didn't get to see them, but a few of my friends didn't said it was really, really amazing. But, I heard that the cure, even when they're not prepping for a tour or anything, they practice like always once a week, no matter what. No way. Oh, wow. and, and I think they live kind of in the same area in, I guess, London. Um, yeah. Which I found really wild, right? You know, you think these bands, they probably get together, they rehearse a month for the tour, two months and get ready to go. But like, it's an ongoing kind of thing that always happens, which I loved hearing that. That's amazing. That's really fucking cool to hear. Yeah. That just shows you that they're probably like they get along, they're friends, and like they give a shit, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really cool. Well, there's that band Gauze from Japan, Gaze, who I, I'm mm-hmm. sure you know, Chris is you're probably very familiar with, but they were, yeah, they're the sort of legendary Japanese punk band that was around for 40 years till the lead singer just passed away. And they would practice every week for five hours a week, and according to legend, not have any other contact with each other, and that would be what they did. And they were the most intense show I've ever seen in my life. Like it was one hour, no stops, and it just tore my face off. 
Wow. That's so hilarious to me that they didn't have contact with each other aside from practice and when they did shows. It's very, what a clean aesthetic. Like, I think a lot of bands, more bands than you think kind of have that really? dynamic, you know, where there's very little communication besides. It doesn't mean that they're enemies or, yeah. you know, or adversaries or anything. It's just that's how they communicate. And, you know, musicians, some of them are, some of them are strange, antisocial and not, you know, not the most, yeah. you know, outgoing. They're all different types of people, but they find a way to communicate, you know, through the to I heard Nirvana wasn't that, you know, that, that there wasn't a lot of talking and discussions and things. Yeah, which is so funny because to me, I guess, because I think of certain bands like I, I one time heard Joe Strummer from The Clash say, if we were all friends like the Red Hot Chili Peppers knew each other when they were kids we would still be together. The clash would still be together. And wow. I, I guess I think about, because I guess the chili peppers, a lot of those guys did know each other from high school and they were like friends, mm. friends, you know, but that, you're right. I, that's an assumption. Sometimes I have, I go, every band must be fucking friends. And, and not that, and if they're not, you're right. doesn't mean that they're enemies, they're musicians and they, they, they understand each other on a different, on a different wavelength. Yeah. Well, again, I wonder if the Peppers are still tight at this point. Like, it becomes such a machine, and like, yeah. not even, not even for huge bands. Like, even even my band, there's members in this band, my band that I haven't talked in years. You know, mm. maybe a decade, um, wow. and it's just really, so, yeah, just I guess it's like you said, it's something that happens where the the art project, to put it in the most generous term possible, the band becomes more important than the relationships that brought the project together. You know, like you're almost staying together for the kids, staying together for the band type mm. thing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You think about the Ramones. I mean, think about mm -hmm. like Johnny and Joey didn't talk All to right. each other for fucking years. Years. They yeah. did not talk to each other, which is insane. Like, and in that documentary, what is it? End of the century. Like Marky says, like, it was uncomfortable because I was kind of friends with everyone. <laughs> and like he goes, you know, and he was like, Johnny and Joe. And to think about it, it's like what was towards the end of that documentary when Joey passes, Johnny says, I didn't go to his to see him at the hospital because all I kept thinking was we didn't get along. And if somebody who didn't like me went to see me, I'd be like, why are you here? Which is in a real, I kind of respect it's very cut and dry. And I see the logic in it. You know, mm -hmm. I see what he's saying. Yeah. yeah. When I was a uh, when I was like 16, I went on a school trip to LA and my teacher was really good friends with Johnny. And we went out for dinner with him and this is just after the Ramones broke up. And you know, they're like no one in the class really knew anything about punk other than me. So everyone's just asking him general questions and someone's like, "Are you ever going to play guitar again?" He's like, "I will never pick up another guitar as long as I live." Like there's no reason. Uh, he did ultimately yeah. a couple times, but he he's like very much he viewed it as a tool and viewed this band as like it, it, it's so interesting how he viewed the band because it's like to yeah. him it was like a, a job yeah he was very military like kind of a military type of way about it right mm -hmm. that's why yeah. i think tommy's the only guy that could have come in after dd and kind of like fallen into the system because uh, or sorry cj cj's the only guy that could have come in after dd and fallen into that system because he was straight out of the military so he was used to kind of that life hmm interesting yeah it's i was i want to ask both of you because i imagine certainly in stand-up comedy and and i imagine lots of times in films like 
there are probably people on set that you don't get along with and certainly don't ideologically see eye to eye with. Is that ever something that's hard to kind of like, in the same way, being in a band with someone that you might not get along with, like, is it hard to work with someone that you just actively don't get along with on set or on stage at a, at a comedy club? I mean, on set, you know, m at least most of the projects, if you're doing a film, that only lasts for a little while. And a, ser a series could last for a long time, but it could, all, you know, it's not like a band where it's like, that's your, that's it for, a you know, you're in, you, if you're in it, you're in it for a long time. But, um, you know, I've always managed to be civil, even when I didn't necessarily get along. I mean, you, you, you try to make the project be more important than your own, you know, likes and dislikes and, and, and whether you're getting along. But um, I've seen it, you know, where people, you know, really hated each other. I've seen that on set and it's very difficult and very uncomfortable. And um, uh, I've seen it happen a lot. Uh, and it's it, it, it disrupts everything, you know, and everybody else. And, um, you know, a lot of times the actors kind of set the tone on the set because they're the center of attention. They're being filmed. So mm -hmm. a lot of the energy's kind of going there. And when that's very disruptive, it could really kind of upset the whole, because the set, you know, on a set, there's way more people than just the actors, obviously. And, and it can really kind of, you know, make it toxic if it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. I, for me, I mean, this is really my first really big experience with this full. So besides the few fist fights that me and Michael had, <laughs> we no, but aside from that, I think he, I, I haven't had much experience. Everybody on the show got along, like everybody on this full, even the crew. I think, I, I think because of the nature of we were, we were just trying to make something really funny and interesting yeah, like a really funny, smart, interesting show. So, and the fact that like there's so much jokes and whatnot, I think it kind of brings everybody in like we're having fun type of atmosphere. And, you know, so I think that helped us a lot. In stand-up, yeah, I mean, sometimes in stand-up, you, I don't think stand-ups are probably as responsible as actors because actors are on set. They have, they have the project to think about. I think sometimes stand-ups can be a little selfish or standoffish in regards to you're up there by yourself. You're not producing the show. It's just a, it's a show <clears throat> you're doing at a club or a showcase show. So, but I've never, I mean, you know, anytime I probably didn't care for someone, I've always kind of just been like, I have this real kind of like aspect when it comes to like stand-up, which is like this, like Mike Watt aspect to it. It's just like, hey, people came here tonight to like, they're probably working class people. They're working. They came here tonight to see you do stand up. They want to find some catharsis and humor or whatever it is you make fun of. Them. Go up there, do your set, you know, and give them a show. And then that's it. Like, they don't care about what your beefs are with other comics or things like that. But they do kind of, right? Because, like, look at the podcast world that's around comedy now. Like, people, like, fiend oh, yeah. for that kind of insider type stuff a little bit, it's too. It's so funny. You're, you're absolutely right. They do. And that's, like, the kind of stuff that I don't care to do. Yeah. Like, I just go, I well, then I'd rather not have those kind of fans that care for to hear me talk about, like, who I don't like. But yeah. those are also things I'd rather just share with my friends, 
you know, like the, those kind of things, like, you know, people, you and your friends talk about, eh, that guy's a jack off or fuck him or whatever, you know, but other than that, I don't really care to take it anywhere else. Yeah. I'm the same way. I don't like yeah. being public about those things. I mean, we all have opinions about certain people, but I mean, I'll talk about whether I like a band or a movie or not. Yeah, or same. Album, but that, that's fine. That's different. But uh, I don't like making that kind of beef kind of thing public. Like this guy's a jerk or this is, you know, um, I just find it like, who am I, you know, why am I sharing that? What's yeah. <laughs> yes. I feel the same exact way. I feel the same exact way. I, I try to keep that stuff away. And it's funny too, because like, you know, I, I may like it in other people's like not in comedy or in like hearing actors, but like, you know, sometimes like if a band doesn't like another band, I kind of go, Oh, that's cool. Or that's funny. You know, like I, I enjoy that. Like, you know, if, if, if a band slags off another band, I don't, you know, or like hearing all those, like, you know, what was that? Like, um, didn't the Sex Pistols write New York about the New York Dolls and the New York scene? Yeah, and the Dolls wrote uh, London. Uh, London, London Boys, Boys, right? Was it Thunders? Thunders wrote London, London Boys. Boys. Yeah, yeah, London. I love shit like that. Or like, I think um, me, me and Michael would talk about this. How uh, Johnny Thunders would call Joe Strummer Joe Bummer. Joe Bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Bummer. <laughs> so. You know, or hearing like, you know, the Clash Road City of the Dead talking shit about Johnny Thunder is always looking for heroin. And like, I love those kind of, that kind of stuff. I don't know why I rejoice in it. It's just like punk beefs are like slightly like cool and funny to me. But I guess like to see it elevated, you know, like where, where it becomes part of the art form. Like there's that documentary yeah. beef, right? All about the hip hop beefs over the years. Yeah. And that's right. Yeah. Um, and certainly some have become violent, but like the ones that are just based in like sort of songs and sort of this idea that it's like elevating the art form. And I guess there's no way that would improve your performance as an actor. In our... <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, God, you could use it if in a scene if you don't like somebody and, and you got to do a scene where you don't like them. Maybe you can get some really some juice out of that, you know, um, using the reality a little bit there. But no, 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 there's no. There's no beefs like that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I never thought about it that. But I guess the reason I like that stuff is because what came out of that was art, was a song. Like London, you know, Thunder's dissing the Leiden and the Sex Pistols. We got London Boys, a, a great song. New York, the Sex Pistols dissing New York, you know, and the New York Dolls, we got New York, which is a great song. And other songs of that nature, you know, like, I think yeah you're right that's absolutely i actually that that i do like because it it, it becomes art yeah and Nas and jay-z right like it's probably the yeah. best Nas the, song you, since that first yep. couple records yeah you hear ether you hear all these songs you hear yeah. it in hip-hop and like it becomes songs like krs1 south bronx like you know that's a great song oh totally yeah and yeah. i guess i guess like maybe what have ever happened to baby jane you know there's sort of like this sort of mystique around how these two actors interacted with each other and how the performances came together, given what everyone kind of knows about the, the behind the scenes stuff. So I guess maybe it adds to the legend of a film, but yeah, I guess it, it yeah. certainly doesn't maybe elevate in the same sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. I, you know, some actors do, I never did. And I think most don't look at acting as once you're in the same project as a competitive thing, of course, getting work, 
you know, is there's a competition, right? You you know, you want to get cast and you, you got to, you know, earn that and beat the, 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 the other actors. But once you're doing something together, you know, you're going to be better if they're better. They're going to be better if you're better. The movie's going to be better if you're both great. You know this whole thing. You know, I, I, I've I've heard and I've sometimes seen. You know, actors trying to outdo each other or like like it's a competition and competitive thing. I think it's really counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's though. That's the difference between music and and comedy, like stand up. I mean, like mm. you have this sort of like outside of your own band, but like in your, you're on a bill with a band that sucks and has a complete different approach to things. You're like that one show, and you're like, well, I'm never gonna play with them again. You know, same yeah. with stand-up. You're like, oh, I'm never going to be on the bill with that person again. When you're, well, it's when you're... different. It's funny because I have. I was just in San Jose. I was in the San Jose Improv this past weekend, and I brought a fr- I brought two comics with me. And the reason I brought them is is because they're so good that they make me work harder. Like, like one one of my friends is a comedian. His name is Mike Menendez. He, I, I love him. He, I, I tell him he's an asshole for this, but he literally goes, "I'm going to make it hard for you tonight," because he'll go. And put on his dog and pony show and he'll kill, he'll murder. And I'm and I'm literally sweating like, holy shit, now I really have to work. I have to work, work, you know. And then so in that sense, like he's being uber competitive and it does like, you know, I'm like, shit, now I really have to work. Like, I just can't go up there and kind of take it easy. Yeah. I, you know, one time my band, my band Zopa open. Well, I'm not going to mention who it was, right? So this is musician. It was his show at a club in New York, small club, but a good one. And he invited us to open, you know, support act. But what he did was he made us play after him. So the place is packed. They're all his fans. He kills. He's amazing. And then we got to go and they don't know us from Adam. It's like kind of like in the first few years of the band. And then we had to go on and play after that. It was horrendous. It was oh, really, awful. It's that a really bad awful. move, man. That is awful. Yeah, yeah. That's what, that's what got Danzig punched out by Northside Kings was pulling that move. Oh, Dan- really? that's why Glenn Danzig not, got knocked down. That's why Glenn Danzig got punched by that band. Cause he made him play after him that night or well, oh, they were made to play after him that night. Really not cool. It's yeah. not a cool move. I was going to say it's kind of the opposite thing in music. If you're on, like we had one time that we had King Con and the shrines and the OCs open up for us. And that was the worst to try and go on after that. Like, it was like, God, we sounded like a, a tinker toy band, but who was that headline? We were the headliner. We were the headliner over King Con and the shrines who had Curtis Mayfield's percussionist playing with them mm. and the OCs like okay. talk about two of the most like unbelievable, yeah. no fail killer bands ever. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, that, and that, we're that, hit or miss at the best of times. <laughs> when you're on set with someone for a, a series or, you know, even a film, like I imagine like if they've got a different approach or a different style to how they do acting, you know, or how they do the art form, you're like in it, you know, there's like very little you can do at that point, but adjust and adapt or, or hope that they adjust and adapt, I guess. I find that, you know, a little bit like, you know, it's a collaborative thing. Why does that actor's process have to like, I mean, listen, if it's, if they're the star and they're in every friggin' scene and you're coming on to do a scene, that's different. Right. But if you're, you know, kind of both, 
if it's more ensemble or you both have big parts, it's like, you know, I, I find making your thing stand out, your process kind of like have to kind of, everyone have to dance around it to be a little bit indulgent. I really find that. I mean, you can do whatever you want. I don't care if, you know, how far you want to go. I get that. But that doesn't have to kind of usurp everything or suck all the oxygen out of everybody else, you know, and, and I don't know. I've kind of seen that happen here and there, you know, I, I, you know, it's, it's such a collaborative thing that you really have to let the other people in, you know? Yeah. I imagine there's like, you know, someone could take it too far or, or not go far enough and you, you have to adjust accordingly if they, if they aren't willing to collaborate. Yeah. You do have to adjust because you can't force them to do anything. And, um, you know, uh, I know this movie a friend of mine was working on. Actually, it was a part I was going to do and I couldn't I had I got the movie died and then I got another job and then it was back on and I couldn't do it anymore. So one of my best friends did my part. And there was a lot of improv in the movie. And one of the actors smacked my friend in the face and it wasn't worked out quite hard. And my friend smacked him back and the guy kind of, he hit kind of a sweet spot and the guy fell down and broke his nose. Oh, Jesus. Oh my gosh. And uh, it was a big mess, you know, and it's just like, you know, those things when you get physical with people really have to be worked out. And if, if you're not going to work it out, both people really have to be on board with, okay, Let's kind of make it, let's make it work. I'm willing to go a little further if you are. And if you both are, then you know it might get a little, it might get a little messy. But uh, apparently this wasn't worked out. At least that's what I heard. And um, turned out really badly. Wow. Yeah. That happens. It's so funny. I, it's so funny. I don't know if that was competitive, but I remember even on set one time. And, you know. The, the guy who plays my uh, Julio's cousin, Luis, he's really talented, a, a comedian, an actor named Frankie Quinones. And one time during first season when we were at the bowling alley and it was the episode where I don't want to celebrate my birthday, he <laughs> he was smacking me on the back of my head when they dragged me there. And the first one, I was like, wow, that's pretty hard. But I won't say anything because I think he's committing to it. And then the second one, I'm like, damn, that's pretty hard. And then the third one, but it's because we get along that I was I was like, hey, Frankie, you can't hit me that hard anymore because it's like I'm starting to feel a certain way that has nothing to do with you, but it's just making me feel anger and want to like, like it's making me want to react. <laughs> like, yeah. then he was like, oh, dude, I'm so sorry, man. I'm just really trying to go for it. <laughs> but I think, you know, when you're not competing, you can talk to each other that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing is also with uh, with acting, you leave the character and in music, sometimes that character just becomes you. And, and certainly in, I imagine that's the same in stand up too, where like you yeah. end up becoming this weird version of yourself because that's who you are on stage. And it's not something you like, unless you're Guar, you're not taking yeah. off the persona. Well, it's interesting because you try to, I guess what stand up is the goal and I hate to wax poetic about stand-up because it's such a dumb thing to do with your life. <laughs> but it's, you know. Try yelling and, in a hardcore band, Chris. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But with stand-up, I think the the thing is to, the goal is always to, you start off trying to be someone else 
or you're starting off taking in all your influences, which is probably like a band, you know, but the goal is you want to be the same person you are on stage as off stage and stand up in that, like you want to go, this is what I probably talk about or like, or even if you're saying something ridiculous on stage, that is a hyperbole of something. Maybe that is who you are off stage as well. It's trying to get to that, you know, like there's a lot of comedians I admire that are, I feel do that, you know? Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's also like any amount of attention, you know, is going to fuck you up as a person, yeah. <laughs> yes. you know, and it doesn't, and it doesn't have to be obviously mm. on TV in movies. It can be in a little punk band in your town, you know, like, cause it's just, it's just like kind of unnatural to be put on a pedestal and to try and find some level of balance. It, it you know, like you know, people do drugs, you know, people do drink themselves yeah. to death because of it. Yeah. The attention is weird. I mean, how have you dealt with it, Michael? You've been getting attention for decades. You know, um, you deal with it uh, uh, case by case. You know what I mean? I mean, living in New York, walking down the street, you, you know, I, lots of people say hello all the time, you know, and every exchange is different, you know, based on the person and their energy and stuff. And, um, you know, sometimes it's quite nice that somebody is happy because they see you and their day, they, you know, they get they they have a, a moment where they're happy or they're excited and then they call their friends or their family and say i saw this actor that i like or whatever i mean if uh, at least at a minimum something kind of positive happens through that exchange that's kind of cool but like it must be you know just even speaking from my own minimal experience with it it's it's hard to I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's hard to kind of find that grounding. Is that like through meditation that you've kind of like achieved that? Like, or is that something you kind of had even before finding meditation? Trial and error. Trial, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> I'm old now, you know, I'm 57 and, um, you know, I mean, early on people would know me from here and there, good fellows or this or that. The Sopranos really kind of, put us on the map you know and people really knowing you so that's been quite a while you know that, that that's almost like 20 24 years you know of that so you you know there's i've had a, I, it was a lot of adjustments after that definitely and seeing what what was going on and expectations and entitlement all that stuff starts to play fuck with your mind really um and uh you know i got you know banged up from that a little bit I will say, um, but uh, I think a lot of people do, and it's kind of understandable because there's no guidebook. You know what I mean? There's no you're not you don't learn that in acting school or anywhere, and you ha really have to kind of figure out how what what does this mean, and 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 how do I filter it? How do I process it? And take you know, it takes a while, you know. Well, like and especially you look at someone like Lou Reed. You know, you wrote the book um, and, and you spent so much time thinking about Lou Reed, but like, I think about him a lot and just sort of what was he like before this? Like you read Transformer and you, you understand like that he was kind of, depending on which thread you believe that he was always kind of like on the edge in terms of mental health stuff and did this lifestyle just indulge that for his whole life, you know, where you don't have to work on yourself necessarily because people are willing to accommodate 
you because they like what you produce for them. Well, I think that went on for, for a long time and, and drugs really, you know, contributed a lot to, you know, mental instability. And then when, you know, later in his life, when he, you know, got sober and started taking care of his, you know, his mind and body and what, you know, he was, he, uh, you know, was into Buddhism and meditation, Tai Chi, especially, um, and just living a healthier life. I think, you know, a lot of that stuff changed in him. I mean, he still could be, you know, prickly without a doubt, but far, you know, you know, in the last, I would say, probably 25 years of his life, maybe more, you know, I think he, he kind of went to a different place, you know. It seems yeah, like, was, oh, go on, Circus. Oh, no, I was just, it's funny that you guys bring him up because yesterday I went out for a long walk and I put on, I was put on music on my headphones and I listened to Street Hassle, that oh, album Street Hassle. Yeah. And I was just favorite. like, I love that album. And I was listening to that album and I was like, God, what a tough album. Like just a tough, but oddly poetic album. And just thinking like, this is at the height, this is like 79 and thinking like everything he's gone through and he's going through at the moment, you know, and it's like to be producing that stuff. You're right. There's probably people who just go, let him keep producing, let him keep doing what he's doing as long as he's producing this great art, you know? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. Well, that happens and you see it. And I, and I, I say this as someone who's lost friends because of this, I think, because you're just indulged so much as soon as you, your creativity is paying off for someone they're willing to, until it doesn't necessarily pay off for them, then they, they cut you loose if you're hard to deal with, but you just get indulged to the point that you can be indulged to death. And obviously he didn't die. He's a certain, he was, well, he passed. Yeah. Luckily he lived a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily he lived a long time. Yeah, and, and, he, and he went through that change that Mike was talking about. Yeah. Yeah, and late career stuff, you know, some of those later albums, you know, like, you know, New York starting, you know, Magic and Loss, even Ecstasy, Set the Twilight Reeling, all that. There's some great stuff. That yeah, he, really great. I love New York. After all that. I think, you know, youth, the strength of being young, you know, the strength in, in body and stuff can really withstand, a, you know, beating yourself up with drugs and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And you can produce and you can be, you know, produce good, good art and be creative. But at some point that can really turn on you. And if you don't kind of overcome that, a, you could die or, you know, you, you know, your art, I think kind of plateaus and, or it stays at a certain level or even diminishes unless you figure out a way to, because as you get older, the body just, and the mind, really starts to, you know, it really starts to take a toll and could be just destructive and, you know, negative. All yeah. That. yeah. Like, you know, whether it's Buddhism or, or transcendental meditation or something, it seems like meditation becomes like a necessity for, for people in, in the arts at a certain point or some finding some sort of meditation, some sort of way to center yourself. 
I think some kind of contemplative practice, you know, looking at the mind. So you see, you know, me, to me, meditation, Buddhism, and Buddhism too, more, much more so than being a religious thing, is about learning about your mind, working with your mind, figuring out what your mind does. Because your mind is your, you know, your interface with the world. You know, every interaction you have with the world, with other people, it's coming through your mind. You're filtering it through your mind. You're interacting through the mind. So it's like, you know, and there's templates and habitual, you know, habituation that we, you know, knee-jerk reactions, things that we've, we're, we're not even aware of. That's our default reaction. And meditation allows you to take a little step back and start to look at that and see, okay, well, what, how do I want to interact with the world, you know? Am I hiding behind here? Am I clinging to some selfish notion or self-centeredness or, you know, neg negative kind of, you know, learned behavior? So, you know, any kind of contemplative practice like that, I think, is really valuable, especially for an artist. Because a lot, you know, you know, when, when an artist can make it later in life, look at someone like Leonard Cohen, you know, who, who, who created amazing work late in his life. Um, you know, we, we need artists to get to get old it's important you know um to see what they have to say you know you know it, it, I, and and that'll help that'll help facilitate that i think yeah and, and i i even go for lulu i think lou reed made some great yeah. stuff later in life fascinating it's lulu. a fascinating record it's, it's maligned but that makes you it know even what's more so funny I, that's the one lou reed record i haven't i never gave it a try and it's funny because enough people, for whatever reason, that record's coming into the zeitgeist right now, where people are talk are revisiting that record, and it's only a few what a few years ago. Like I think it's coming like, up on ten, right? Yeah, ten. Yeah, well, he and, died in twenty thirteen, so yeah, his death 20, is ten years. This, yeah, so twenty twelve, I guess, was like when that record yeah. came out, right? So I'm I'm really interested in listening to it now. Like I I haven't I don't I can't say I ever gave it a proper listen, and. And maybe at the time it was just beyond me that I was like, you're making a record with Metallica. Why? And no diss against Metallica, but it just didn't seem, I couldn't connect the dots. An odd combination. On, on it's an odd combination. Yeah. yeah but now I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like now I'm, I'm hearing enough people talk about it that I'll be a Johnny come lately on this, but I'm like, I'm going to give it a listen to. I bet you I have a, I have a feeling that I'm going to enjoy it more than I thought I would. I would. Oh. I like I find it like one of those things where it's almost like in a Marshall McLuhan sense of like the medium being the message. Like I find like everything about it, like obviously the art that's produced, the record I find interesting and it's still a tough listen. I'm not gonna lie on that front. But there's there's good stuff in there. But just like the idea of like how did these two forces of ego come together in the studio and produce this record? Like Lou Reed could make a record with anyone in the world. Metallica could make a record with anyone in the world. Like, why did they choose to work with each other? I just find everything about it just so interesting. And, you know, they didn't have to do it. Like, that's why I think to me it's a it's a piece of art in a way because they chose to make it. There was an intention with it that what went beyond just sort of economics and certainly beyond they must have known that people were going to hate it. They must have been like, well, you know what, let's just do this for us. Yeah, that's which really is cool. great. It takes a lot of guts, and 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 I think you have to sometimes, you know, and very often as an artist, you have to do that. I'm just doing this for me. If other people like it, or if they don't like it, you know, it takes it takes a big risk. Take a lot takes a lot of guts to do that. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel absolutely. that? Oh, go on. Sorry, Chris. Oh no, no, that's what I was just saying. Absolutely. <laughs> 
like i guess both of you like especially with like this fool like that was a risk you know like deciding to write something like that like had you attempted to yeah. write other series before like what was the yeah i'd written a thing or two in the same vein in that kind of same vein and then it wasn't until i met the guys uh jake weissman matt Britson, and pat bishop i already knew them from the stand-up world but it wasn't until we started working together that it kind of our tastes really coalesced and brought in together and we just wanted we were you know we loved all the same films and we enjoy so much of the same music but a lot of it also came from we the way we pitched the show was like friday but directed by the coen brothers <laughs> and you know and just kind of making this this like this comedy set in this urban world of south central los angeles much like friday but having this very strong cinematic sense and subversiveness of that you find in like Coen brother movies. Like we were thinking about how much we love a serious man and, you know, those types of films and raising Arizona and whatnot. And, you know, I think it was, it, it, it was a big swing. Cause I remember, you know, I was kind of like, well, I'll, when they reached out to me, I said, Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll learn from them, but I doubt it'll go anywhere further than this than us writing a treatment so then when we pitched it and they and they bought they paid us to write a pilot hulu i was like well we'll make a pilot and we probably won't go farther than this and then when they greenlit when they greenlit up to syria i said well we'll make season one but i doubt it'll go further than this <laughs> they gave us season two now i'm just like uh, i my now I'm like, maybe I should just expect the worst for everything. You know? <laughs> well, that, no, that's a healthy way to approach it, I think, yeah. because, you know, not yeah. that you're expecting the worst necessarily, but just it allows you to live in the moment more that way. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It kind of allows you to be in the moment. And also I was kind of work, you know, I was still doing stand up and stand up is so something that's like I do a lot of and it's important in my life. So I was just kind of like, well, I love I was already writing a few things and wanting to make things. So, you know. So I was like, all right, this is cool. And even though we were kind of existing in this corporate bubble, we were kind of this show that like this small show that like they cannot let us do whatever we want. Like, you know, like we would put like punk music in there and they wouldn't question us on it. Or we would be like, this is how these characters dress. And this is the world that's set in. And, you know, they yeah, they weren't they didn't question or when we were saying when we said this character is going to have a huge penis that ruins his life they were like they didn't okay. question they didn't question it they didn't question it they always I were like it. yeah sure i was gonna say did you question it michael <laughs> uh, listen i just roll you know went with it but i will say you know what you what you set out to do you really achieved chris um because, oh thank you you know um when i got offered the part uh they had shot a, the pilot and mm -hmm. with a different actor playing my part. Yeah. So I got to see, I, I, I really didn't want to go to LA and work. I was, I was busy doing a couple of things in New York. Not, I wasn't shooting anything, but I was doing a bunch of stuff and I really kind of didn't want to go to LA. I wasn't in the mood. Um, so they sent me this thing and I watched it. And I'm like, shit, this is really good. <laughs> I was almost <laughs> bit disappointed. I'm like, I have to do this. No, I watched it with my wife and we're both like, this is really good, you know, um, because you managed to be irreverent, really funny, you know, kind of turning, the, you know, people's preconceptions upside down, yeah. earnest, yet also, you know, 
there's a lot of heart and and when when especially the end the end of the pilot really got me and i was like i gotta do this and then when we met we met over a zoom i was like all right well obviously i gotta go do this and and it was uh i was really happy i had a it's it's been really fun working on that show it's a it's a and you know a lot of the people on the crew were so happy to come back I mean, a couple of people weren't looking to work wanted to take off for a while That's but right. yeah. because it was this show they came back because they were like i just love it and it, and if you feel that and that's you know this is your first show i've done yeah. you know, a ton of them and that's really the exception to the rule yeah that was that was a thing too that like i think a lot of that was helpful because the guys that i show run with and i would have the same mentality whether it was them or not but luckily it was them is they said um uh, they said we have a philosophy which is no assholes on set they sure. said because you know these are long the, these are long days you're working 12 out 12 to 13 hour days filming and we try to get everybody home at a decent time we try to be as efficient as possible and shoot in 12 hours so we can get people home to their families so like why be an asshole on set like you know no assholes and that, that was a big thing it was like you know, so it was just, so I think that really, aside from it just being a comedy, but that philosophy really just carried on to everyone. Yeah. So yeah, that was kind of a real good th thing that I really enjoyed, which is just like, yeah, no, no fucking assholes. Don't, you know, like everybody's cool with each other, you know, keep it that way. That's a, that's a Foo Fighters rule too. Like there's no yeah, assholes oh, really? on their crew. And if you're an asshole of the opening band, you get fired. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> I love cool. that. It's yeah. really it's awesome to be on that tour because everyone's yeah. super cool. Like yeah. They've weeded out all the assholes long ago. So at this point everyone's everyone's a chiller and you're having a good yeah. time every time. Yeah, I think you need that. Yeah. Michael, I'm yeah. always kind of amazed at like the humbleness you approached like the writing stuff and the band. You know, obviously you did music before. We talked about that before the acting thing even took off, obviously, but like you know like to come back to it and and be willing to like open for bands you know and be willing to kind of like not you know turn it into some sort of like vanity project and even like the the book like putting it on an indie publisher and like hmm. not trying to make it into you know like this just, it just seems like that's like uh there's like another way you could have approached it which would not be as cool you know i i i, I try to follow the people that I admire and do things how they do it. You know what I mean? Um, we, you know, the band didn't play together for like seven years because I was living on the West Coast and we got back together a little over two years ago and it's been really, 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 really fun. And to be 57 and kind of like being in this like young band kind of starting out and playing like gigs and, um, you know, we stayed in an Airbnb in London. It was like these these three 21 year olds that had the apartment <laughs> that wound up coming to the show. And um, it, it, I don't know, there's I didn't really do a lot of that when I was young as much as I, I wish I did. And um, it's kind of fun starting kind of starting out. And even though we've been together for a long time, but the last two years, like it's a lot of stuff has come together and it's it's just a great experience in a way um uh you know i mean opening for bands of course you know i mean there's like i don't look at things in terms of competition and um you know it's 
there's a lot of baggage that I bring to music, obviously, because of, of, you know, being an actor. But I always lean on the other guys in my band. They're musicians. And we play together. And, like, you know, the fact that they want to play and they want to write and they want to do shows, you know, to me, that gives me a lot of confidence because I think they're incredible musicians and really, really, you know, distinctive individual artists. And I lean into that all the time, you know, they're their work and the fact that they 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 believe in this you know they believe in what we're doing and and, and that gives me a lot of uh faith you know yeah like i think the the ego stuff can become like kind of armor you know at times dealing with like negative criticism of, of the work you're doing and and a lot like it's a protective thing and so to be able to take that off and yeah. put it back on when necessary that, that's like a that's a skill you know like chris said like i, I like you know looking at someone who's you know since since goodfellas like i was going to ask you chris when was the first time you remember seeing michael on screen to me it's that obviously goodfellas jumps out so so funny to me it's actually and the thing that i've never really talked to him about was basketball diaries oh yeah that, that was my introduction you know when i was a kid one of my introductions to like alternative stuff was not just basketball diaries but jim carroll yeah. like you know that soundtrack, I never, you know, when I was a kid, I, that came out when I was in junior high and I heard it. And I, around that time, I was getting into punk music and alternative music. And I heard People Who Died and Catholic Boy. I went to go buy that soundtrack at, on tape, I remember. And, you know, but I just remember him from Basketball Diaries. That, I, if Almost more than Goodfellas, I'm positive of it. It was Basketball Diaries. Did you did you get to meet Jim Carroll? No. No, yeah. I I, I I don't think no. I never met him. Yeah, I knew you, the book. You knew the, the book, movie. right? Yeah. Yeah, I think they were gonna do it years before, and I forget who with, and then it kind of fell apart. For some reason, I think Cassavetes might have been interested in doing it. If I'm not mistaken, well, that would have been amazing. That's incredible. To think that about. Book. I I could be wrong. For some reason, that popped into my head that he was interested in that book. Um. And it's a it's a really interesting book, and it's a very specific time. It ca really captures a specific time and the place. I mean, I think the film's good. It's a little bit flawed, but I think there's a lot of good. I mean, Leo's really good, and um, yeah, Lorraine, and some of the other actors, Michael Rappaport. There's some good. There's some good uh, performances in it for sure. Yeah, well, I think what's so cool about that movie, even if it is flawed or not, is that it just it introduced people to like Jim Carroll to people my age. Yeah, you know, it was through then that later and like a few years later, then I read the book and then I read his poetry books, you know, and that's kind of like was a lot of that finding out that like New York punk was steeped into like poetry and people like Patti Smith were writing poetry. They were into Rimbaud and, you know, uh, Tom Berlane was into poetry. Richard Hell was a big poetry guy. Like, so it was really cool to like for me, it's like. It's funny, I never thought about it, but that, you know, like Basketball Diaries and that soundtrack really opened up a lot for me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That, that, yeah. that, the impact of that film is, you know, like mm -hmm. flawed or not, like the, the impact of yeah. that film is immense. And I, I don't know how it did when it came out in theaters, but I think on video, that must have been like, I think every kid oh. rented yep. that movie. That's, that's how yeah. I, I rented that movie. That's yeah. exactly, you're exactly right. And I mm -hmm. bought that soundtrack. Yeah. And so, like, it's a soundtrack I think I still probably have at my mom's house. Like, I know I have it on tape, but it was just so cool because, like I said, it was, I 
I bought uh, later when I got older in high school, I tracked down that Jim Carroll band album, that first album. I think it's Catholic Boy. And then recently on the road, I was in Kansas and I bought, I came across a Jim Carroll album. I think it was their third album. I forgot the name of it. And I picked it up. I, I got to meet him uh, because of that movie. You know, my brother and I saw that movie and, and got mm -hmm. into him. And then, of course, he did that appearance on the Rancid record. Yeah, MIA, I think, or one yeah. of those songs. Yeah. And we went down and talked to him and, like, just asked him probably the dumbest questions. <laughs> but yeah. he was cool. And, like, I, I look back on that and it's, like, all thanks to that movie that I, you know, found out about him and went and met him. Yeah. Like, like way before I was ready to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the early one for you know DiCaprio. I mean, it was before Titanic, obviously, before he was you know really kind of became you know a gigantic star. But uh, it, it certainly showed his talent early enough. Yeah, and it was also yeah. like you know at the time of I guess nine hundred two one zero and all these sorts of things, like to see kids doing drugs like that. Like that's pre kids the movie. Yeah. Um, so like seeing young people do drugs that openly in a film when the reality is that's what i gotta keep my voice down in case my teenagers listening but that was the reality of the time oh yeah oh, okay. yeah absolutely for me too yeah yeah it was speaking just, of yeah. kids fabian alomar who's in this fool was in kids yeah fabian alomar he was uh he he plays fabian on on the show this fool he was in he was in kids yeah because he he was a pro skateboarder pro skateboarder. Oh, wow. he was a pro skateboarder and he was he, he knew somehow like through the skateboarding world he knew larry clark and right. you know which is funny because it comes back to full circle because larry clark in the the mid-2000s he made a movie called what's up rockers and it was about a group of central american latino kids in south central los angeles into punk music and he kind of modeled it after the warriors is they get lost in beverly hills and they feel unsafe in Beverly Hills and they're trying to make it back to South Central by the nighttime. And it was, it, it was really cool. Yeah. It, it's funny. It's all these little connections of like punk rock and all this stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's why I love this shit. I love that shit that that all, everything winds up connecting back. But... <clears throat> yeah, it really does. A lot of it does sort of connect back. I mean, I, I think Michael, you were even telling me like, I remember when we first met, you were telling me when in theater, you guys would make your own flyers, right? When you guys were doing theater in New York. Oh, yeah. Posters and, you know, go go at night and, you know. Yeah. Based, you know, posters up in the city. And, um, you know, the first theater company that, you know, I, st I, I started producing theater in my early 20s. And the whole, the, the, the other guy who I started with is Tom Gilroy, who's an indie filmmaker now. The whole thing was from the DIY, you know, punk aesthetic, because he was a DJ Boston College in the late 70s and early 80s. And, you know, they're, they're, the Boston College had a lot of those, you know, post-punk yeah. bands coming over, you know, bringing them over. So he, you know, the whole, our whole thing was like, you know, like the, the poster, the, you know, the art was very important, the visuals, the kind of just like, do it yourself, get it done. You know, I mean, the first play we put on, I remember we, we somehow we borrowed money from somebody's parents to, to rent the theater, which was always the big expense. But the set was built from looking through dumpsters in, you know, downtown New York and just trying to find wood and pieces of stuff to build a set. And um, 
that you know that the the mentality definitely came from punk you know just do it yourself yeah that's cool was that stuff kind of going on like in were were you doing theater at the time when all that like Basquiat, Richard Kern, Jim Jarmusch stuff was going on in New York. Was that like kind of the mid '80s, right? The first play was eighty. Mm, mm, let's see, twenty-one. Yeah, more like eighty-seven. 88. Wow, that's a interesting. A little bit. Yeah, Basquiat so might have gone by then, but yeah, Jarmusch was doing stuff, and uh, yeah, Jarmusch was definitely doing a lot stuff. of Nick Zed. Demi. Nick Zed was making films and Steve Buscemi was, you know, Steve Buscemi came from performance art. Performance art was a big, you know, kind of like where punk and theater kind of converged, you know, which was a new genre that really, kind of, I think, came out of punk, really, um, yeah. with, you know, really a new genre of, of theater and art and performance of just, you know, which really broke all the boundaries. And it was like, you, you don't even have to have a story. You don't, you know, you don't even have to have anyone else on stage and you can make something interesting. And, and uh, that was also very inspiring. Well, I almost find it the other way. I find like punk kind of comes out of that type of theater, right? Like the Vienna actionists and their performances that were going on hugely inspirational of course Living on theater yeah. yeah and then like even jane when uh, jane county was on the podcast she yeah. talked about like being in a play with patty smith where patty smith jumped on stage yelled brian jones is dead and then shot herself up with speed and uh like it seems like before there was punk like kind of this jim carroll kind of pre-punk era thing there's it's theater that these people are finding expression in first in new york Right, like La Mama and that early that living theater and 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 yeah, I, I you know that definitely came out of the beat generation, the beats and the, and and that kind of type of literature and poetry and the theater of the times and then, but performance art like that happened like in the eight, early eighties was a really new kind of thing like with like Karen Finley and Penny Arcade and. Uh, even Bogosian to some degree was a little bit, I would say a little bit more traditional than the other two I mentioned, but, but um, you know, that, that was, which was so interesting. It was all this kind of cross pollinization and, you know, be it film and music. And, you know, I remember I did a movie with Richard Edson a long time ago who was in Stranger of Paradise, but was also yeah. the first drummer in Sonic Youth. You know, there was a lots of, you know, movement within genres back then you know in new york that's so crazy i mean even it's funny that you bring up jane county because i the, earlier this week i was just looking up her clips i was just looking up performances and being like how theatrical it is and knowing what she came out of you know and it's just it's amazing to talk about how fucking ahead of her time she was what's that song man enough to be a woman that that song there's like there's this whole i think i'm trying to remember what it's called now but it's like a 1974 series of acetates that bowie's production company paid for her to record that's right i heard about this yeah and to oh, me really? that's the first punk stuff like in yeah. in every way of it like stick it in me is this incredible yeah. song from one of those performances fuck off. Yeah. fuck off like all that stuff even the first jane county like record max's kansas city comes out in 74 like predates the ramones lp like i think yeah jane county's influence in pop culture is hugely yeah. underrated i'm always marveling at why no one's really championed her more yeah yeah that is true yeah very important yeah. 
it's funny my one thing that slipped by me last time we we're talking michael is you brought up uh miracle legion as being a big influence on you yeah yeah i went to see them i guess in like 80 88 at, at maxwell's which mm -hmm. was in hoboken which was a really great rock club um and we became friends you know especially with mark mckay and ray neal um but they you know really a very influential band you know i mean uh i know radiohead were big fans of miracle legion as is a, a ton of bands but um yeah seeing them and just just you know their specificity they kind of they they kind of hit this sweet spot um and uh their live performances are always still you know i mean i've seen them actually not that long ago and still uh he sounds his voice sounds amazing and ray's playing is as good as ever and it's uh they were really big at that album the backyard and then uh surprise 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 those are two really important records for me yeah like they're they're a, a band that i you know didn't even really kind of discover till after you brought them up and then in discovering them only to realize they're on inca's records which was a hugely important connecticut punk hardcore label like the same label chris that puts out 76 percent uncertain wow and, and lost generation and like uh. and miracle legion is a hugely important band also for elgin james the showrunner of the tv show mayans who used to play in this hardcore band Rich's oh it, jams. is it I didn't yeah. know. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, like it's it's interesting once again how everything's sort of interconnected. And he he I think he even talked about seeing them a few times back in the day in Connecticut because that was like that's where they're from. Yeah, yeah, that was the scene he was kind of getting into at that time with Lost Generation and seventy six percent uncertain and and that sort of stuff. So it's yeah, it's it's amazing how it's all like weirdly intertwined like that. And like you're saying, like a a band that's an influence on Radiohead. Yeah, like yeah, it's crazy. You were also telling me, Michael, you're a big Galaxy 500 fan, right? Huge, yeah. Yeah. yeah they were, um, they're actually a big influence on, on Zopa, you know, which is also a trio like Galaxy 500. But there was something how they were doing it that really um, blew my mind the first time I saw, I saw them at the old knitting factory on Houston Street, New York, uh, shortly after their record uh, On Fire came out. And um, there was just something that their sound was just so beautiful and specific and and big for three people you know um yeah and i saw them a lot you know they they weren't together that long um and they did they did uh they did several covers but there were two covers that they did that they really made their own that that was a thrill to hear them play live one was ceremony in new order you know joy yeah. song and the other was don't let don't let our youth go to waste a jonathan richmond song Oh, they, that's they a great really, song. those two covers if, if you yeah you haven't heard them you really should because they uh it's you know when when a band does a cover and makes it theirs and it's like uh, and it becomes this other thing you know both yeah. and and something original at the same time it's really that um but but their their own songs that they wrote their original material was also just brilliant i think um oh yeah it's crazy how a really good cover can i i, I you you turned me on to uh, Suicide's cover of Ninety Six Tears when we were filming season one. You're the one who told me about it, Good. and I I listen to it pretty often now. I mean, it's a yeah, Suicide's like one of those bands that I feel doesn't get talked about enough, like Alan Vega and Mario oh, really? Springsteen covered Suicide. Did he? What, what did he cover? Dream Baby Dream. 
No way. He fucking covered that. That's fucking amazing. Oh, that kind of makes sense. What's that album that he that album that he recorded by himself? Uh, uh, Nebraska. Bat, Nebraska. Yeah. There's a song on there that sounds very suicide. He was into suicide. I mean, he's on Street Hustle, Springsteen. Yeah, he is. That's right. Yeah. Um, and he wrote that song for the Ramones too. Right. Patty. And Patty. And you know, because yeah. you know. Um, yeah. It's interesting. And Patty Smith, you know, he was he was around all those those bands. That's right. Yeah. He yeah, he wrote what was the big famous song that he wrote for Patty Smith, right? Because of the night. Because of the night, yeah. Fuck, what a song. Yeah. Yeah, that's her biggest I think that's her biggest hit, obviously, right? Yeah. And so, I think so. You know, great retirement plan he gave her. That's yeah. Here you go. <laughs> um, it, it, I always am fascinated though about Jonathan Richmond as this young kid interacting with like the Warhol factory people and like you know this as this Lou Reed fanboy and stuff. Jonathan Richmond uh, back then, you know, running there's around a, New York. There's a great book called Astral Weeks. I don't know if you've and it, it documents 1968 in Boston was. Van Morrison left New York because he was in trouble with the mob. He had a mob manager or some shit in New York and he left New York and he went to Boston and, you know, kind of put together this random group of jazz musicians that he didn't even know and recorded Astro Weeks. But at the same year, the Velvet Underground, the Velvet Underground played more shows in Boston than they ever played in New York, which most people don't know. But that's crazy. Velvet Underground spent a chunk of time there. And there was also this very weird cult kind of hippie cult that was happening in Boston at the time. And it really goes into all that stuff. And Jonathan Richmond being with the, the Velvet Underground, uh, it's an excellent, excellent book of that strange year in Boston. It's a, it's a really good one if you get a chance to read it. I'm going to pick that up. That sounds really interesting. I've got a book actually just called 1968 that looks at like the year 1968. Obviously, it doesn't unfortunately talk about that particular thing in Boston, but like it, and, but it does kind of like look at the year 1968 as being the the youth in revolt year and the idea that like you, the situationists in France and and all this sort of like is that the John happen. Savage book? No, I don't think this one's by John Savage. I think it's actually even more of a coffee table book with oh, photos wow. and stuff. I haven't looked at okay. it in years, but kind of as a as a. Uh, reaction to the summer love the year before uh you know and just what year was the mansons was that 68 69 69 yeah which is the end of it right like that really the impacts of that are are fascinating to look at like how that just disrupts american youth culture yeah arguably till punk you know disco obviously serves a different community and in different communities but punk is kind of like the next sort of flare-up of of aggressive youth culture well there's theories that it was deliberate that that you know there's that book chaos that came out a couple of years ago about that that posits this theory that manson was groomed by the cia to do exactly that to kind of end the counterculture and the hippie kind of culture and there's a lot of that's a really interesting book that goes into a lot of detail about manson's history and his interaction with um the government uh it's pretty anybody interested in that should read that book okay. yeah i've heard about this book i've yeah. heard about it that's really there's, interesting yeah that makes a lot of that. sense cool, sorry oh th- you know, it makes me think about this this is really funny there's also another theory that the sex pistols were put together by the kgb <laughs> by the russian kgb <laughs> yeah. in order to like really like destroy like 
Western kind of like okay. it, like Western Europe and American like values. But th there was a theory going around about that. I, I remember I read like a Guardian article about it, possibly, right. which was at the KGB, which is ridiculous. I mean, but like, but it's funny to think about these kind of things as like that th this was started the Sex Pistols in a way they they had contact with Michael McLaren, whether he that the way they put it was Malcolm McLaren and the Pistols didn't know they were tools of the KGB and Russia. But then Malcolm McLaren took over the was managing the dolls and made dolls, them, yeah. you know, had the communist flag on stage, the whole which was the kind of end of the dolls. Basically. Yeah, which is the so red funny. Patent letter, letter. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so funny because I've seen those videos and there's nothing sadder than seeing the dolls dressed in red leather with those singles because they're a street band. These guys are like tough dudes who are like oddly very apolitical, like very street, very apolitical. And to put a sickle behind them in red leather and you're just like, this is ridiculous. This was the death nail to this fucking amazing was. band. Well, that, that KGB conspiracy buys into the... Uh the the cia killed sid vicious conspiracy which is that they were the ones that sold his mom the heroin that ended up killing him yeah um but there's also that other you know back to jim jarmusch but uh the rockets red glare conspiracy theory that he actually yes. killed sid and nancy yes i've heard that yeah the rockets red that glare. rockets killed uh that rockets killed nancy yeah he's killed nancy sorry and then yeah sid dies obviously later on but yeah that that rockets was in the room because he was sid's security guard at that time yes yeah there's there's a i've heard that it could have been some some like a drug dealer or something that because that they a lot of people really felt that sid wasn't capable of doing that but no yeah 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 it's it's one of those things where i you know like i'm always like why do we celebrate this guy like unless it was a conspiracy and someone else did it but like the fact that he is in rock and roll halls of fame or in these places that are you know meant to celebrate culture like why are we celebrating the guy that didn't play his bass parts that's irrefutable and yeah oh he didn't on the record no no there were <laughs> he did not i think he on the lied. record it was steve jones steve jones Playing played on the bass yeah, yeah. Steve yeah. Jones played all the bass on on the record, and maybe with an exception, I think Glenn Matlock might have been on one track or two. Maybe. I thought that was a rumor, but maybe Chris Spedding did some yeah. of it too or something. But yeah, like he Sid did not touch yeah. the bass on that album, and and like you know live, I think they would turn him down and all these sorts of things. And then so if you couple on that the fact that like yeah, he probably in all likelihood did kill this woman, it's like it's weird that we celebrate yeah. him. Well, he's kind of a sad figure to me in that way. He's this weird, like, icon, like almost like a Che Guevara iconography where mm -hmm. it's like T-shirts and this and that. But I always, I guess, I, you know, what I felt ever since I saw that documentary, The Filth and the Fury, the Sex Pistols documentary by Julian Temple, when they kind of have uh, John Lydon crying at the end saying, I kind of feel bad it was my fault. He was just a kid. I just go, yeah, he was just a dumbass kid. You know, right. he was... He was just a dumbass kid. Like, and I mean that in a sympathetic way. You know, he was a kid who's like working class kid from South London, probably, and like got hopped up on drugs, maybe wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, you know, became a cliche. And pop, pushed you know. to indulge in all this in his yeah. worst behavior. Yeah. It, it's weird when you talk to like, you know, the, the guys from Sum 41 on, and obviously never did anything <laughs> terrible like that, but talking about how they were encouraged to overindulge and encouraged to fuck shit up 
because that was going to get them hype and that was going to sell them records. It's almost like a playbook that Malcolm wow. McLaren developed with the Sex Pistols. And I guess it even goes back to the Rolling Stones in, in their own way of like, you know, being bad kids so other bad kids celebrate you. Or other yeah. kids just in general celebrate you. Yeah. There's something to that without a doubt. Yeah. Does it feel weird when you meet people that, I don't know, and I, maybe maybe I'm putting this on the show, but like Sopranos could be taken in so many ways and your, and your character could be taken in so many ways. There's, a, you know, like a, a tragedy to the character that I think is, you know, that I certainly pick up on overarching. But like, is it weird when you meet people that sort of celebrate the side of the show that, you know, it seems like the show's critiquing ultimately? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, The Sopranos had a remarkably and has still a remarkably broad audience. Mm-hmm. You know, it appeals to, you know, people who like, you know, ga- gangster movies and, you know, action movies and also appeals to, you know, people who, you know, intellectuals and read novels and, you know, like, you know, Downton Abbey or whatever. But um, it really became evident to me and I, I was kind of very naive when I got on social media, which really was during the pandemic. And I started posting things about politics and uh, I kind of realized very quickly that <laughs> a lot of the audience and fans of Sopranos did were not aligned with my beliefs in any stretch of the imagination. I, I mean, a lot are. I mean, I was kind of dumb to assume that, I guess. It was a little bit of a surprise um, and still kind of is. But, you know, people people say... Sometimes I'll, I'll post stuff about gun control, you know, and like, well, you're a hypocrite because you, you glorified or whatever gun usage and this and that. And it's, you know, it's like you can't tell those stories without having that as a element, you know, you can't otherwise, you know, to, to like Goodfellas, you know, the, the first scene in Goodfellas is that scene is a flash forward when they're killing Frank Vincent's character in the trunk, right? That really happens in the middle of the movie. Because after that scene, then it starts like in the 50s or 60s and everybody's young and it's like, you know, uh, go from rags to riches. It's a bit more innocent. It's a bit more fun. But I think Scorsese puts that up front to say, before you get seduced by the, you know, Tony Bennett and the clothes and a little bit of a more innocent time, this is what it's about. and in that way, I think it's very honest, you know? Yeah, like it feels like, and it's the same thing in, in punk music, right? Like you're you're ultimately, not ultimately, but there's there's times where you're like singing songs about political issues, but you're using suffering to produce art that's going to be sold for commerce, you know? Or like there's, uh, what's who, which would, is it crass or, sorry? Is it crass or conflict that has that song uh, using pictures of starving babies to sell records or? I think it's crass, yeah. Yeah, yeah. like there's sort of this uh, this idea of like when you produce art, there's there's something that has to fuel it. And where does that fuel come from at times? Mm. This, is, this is something I grapple with all the time. Like, you know, when you write yeah. a song, like where you're trying to express like a political statement, like is that statement going to be understood? And, you know, like this is, you know, this is stuff we have conversations in the band. Right, right oh, yeah, I, I get it with comedy. Like, I have a yeah. joke about, I too go into my bits, but I have a joke about how I, I say, I don't like to support small businesses. 
and then I go into uh, I go into what I like uh, that I like big businesses and whatnot. But uh, the joke I say I don't like to support small businesses because I have IBS. And then I always, you know, I say, I don't know if you ever ran into a small business clenching your ass, asking to use the restroom, but they won't let you use it. <laughs> and then and then the joke I say, you know, I don't love corporations, but like, you know, there are these big, huge corporate chains. They're not any better. They're, they're they treat their employees bad. They don't give them adequate health insurance. Oftentimes they don't let them unionize. I go, but you run into a target almost shitting your pants. And these kind-hearted souls will open up their hearts and be like, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Go down aisle 15, shit on the floor. We'll have one of our underpaid workers clean it up. Don't worry about it. And sometimes sometimes I'll have people come up to me later and tell me, dude, I hate small businesses. And I go, no, no, no. no. I, don't. <laughs> I go, this is completely anecdotal to me just having IBS. I even state that I think small biz- big businesses are bad, but but I satirically say, they open up their hearts and let you use their bathrooms. You know? Yeah, I don't but think it, it's it's hard. It's hard. You sometimes you can't control the way people receive your what you're trying to do. Right. Yeah, you don't appreciate a Starbucks until you're in a touring band and you yeah. got to go number two. So yes. <laughs> you know it's going to be clean. Yeah, yes. you know it's going to be free. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Well, it feels like a weird way to end this conversation, but uh, I don't want to keep <laughs> you guys all day. No. Uh, this is a lot of fun. And anytime you guys want to come back on together, separate, whatever configuration, you know the door is always open to both of you and, and looking so forward to season two. Thanks, brother. Yeah, thank you so much, man. I really I really do appreciate it. It, it really means, you know, being a fan of this podcast and, you know, it, it just means a lot to me. Yeah, this is fun.